Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from David Saunders about living with congenital heart disease and overcoming unexpected challenges. I was coming up to my 16th birthday. The effects were becoming far more obvious. I was getting fatigued very quickly. I was getting tired and out of breath very, very quickly. And it was like, this isn't right. This isn't just the normal kind of, you know, out of breath doing. I was getting out of breath doing things that I'd been doing all the time with no issue. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman, and on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. In this episode, 25-year-old David talks about how his heart condition set him on an unexpected path, and how he has used humour to cope with life-changing challenges and inspire other young people along the way. So, David, thanks for joining us on Ticker Tapes today. Now, you were born with a congenital heart disease. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I was born with a condition called truncus arteriosus. And uh, when I was born, the two arteries that come out of my heart, the pulmonary that goes to the lungs and the aorta, which goes to the rest of my body, uh, instead of being separate, they were actually fused together. So I wasn't getting enough oxygen to the right places. Right. And and were your parents aware you had this condition sort of before you were born or? Um, no. So when I was born, I was I was quite sickly and I was um, I lost a lot of weight. And my parents took me to the doctors quite a few times and they got told that I uh, at first they were told that I was just kind of crying for attention because I was wanting more food. And then hmm. they were told I had I think they said colic or something like that. But eventually they had me sent to the hospital and they did some scans and they were like, nope, there's something far more serious here. So they went to Edinburgh uh, to the children's hospital there where they, they did full scans and found out what exactly was going on. Right. And, and how soon after you were born did you have surgery or any procedures done? So I was born in the middle of August and my first operation uh, open heart surgery was at the end of November. Wow so, so you were three months old? Yes yeah. Well wow. um, can you explain what that surgery was? So what they were doing were they were separating the two arteries um, into into separate tubes and what that meant was they with the aorta the main one they were able to fill it out and kind of stitch it back together and it was a, a proper artery coming out my heart but the other one the pulmonary they had to sacrifice some of the tissue from that to completely fix the other side. So I was given um, what's called a homograft, which is essentially a donor section of artery with a valve inside it. And that was implanted um, between my heart and between the pulmonary. And that's left me with a condition called pulmonary stenosis, which mm-hmm. is a narrowing of the pulmonary artery. It was a huge operation for a, for a tiny little baby. Mm. And you, ma- you made a good recovery, though, after that. I did. I. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember too much of it, but uh, but uh, by all accounts, I was. It, it was a very quick and sudden. Like, okay, things are fixed now. I'm getting better. All the kind of the really bad health problems I was having, were resolved by that surgery. Mm. Can you remember when you first did become aware that you had a heart condition? Did your mum and dad sit down and explain it to you? If I think back, I can't remember a time when I didn't know. I was told that I had this uh, problem with my heart, which meant I had to go into the hospital a few times. And it was almost made like an event. You know, I would go into the hospital, I would get a scan and then we'd go to the cinema and we'd get food and 
you know, I'd almost be excited because I knew what was coming afterwards. I'd get a present or something like that. So that was when I was younger. All I really knew was there was something and it meant that I maybe couldn't run as far as other kids or uh, as fast. I don't think it stopped me from trying, though. I, I think mm. I think I was a pretty wild kid. I mean, we, grew, we're, <laughs> we live in the middle of a forest here and I was up and down trees all the time and, you know, covered in all the mud and scratches and bruises that you you would expect. Yeah, you you must have given your parents a bit of a scare, though. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope, I hope I did. <laughs> so, I, would, I think it would be a boring child if I didn't terrify my parents every so often. Exactly. And a great tactic as well to kind of link hospital to treats and things as well. Oh, it, it was it was very clever. It was the point where I was like, they would say hospital visit and I would just think cinema. And <laughs> <laughs> um, how did it affect you as a child at, at school? I mean, you mentioned that you sort of became aware of it you know, when you couldn't run as fast and stuff like that? I, I had a core of very close friends. They were always very understanding and accepting of what was what was going on and that I didn't need to. But what it would mean is like in sports game, you know, football, basketball, things like that, I couldn't keep up. I was not able to um, do the prolonged activity. I couldn't play a full game. I could play football, but I couldn't play a full game of football. I would be absolutely knackered by by halfway through the first half. Um, and there was a lot of people and the other the other kids in school not really getting that I wasn't just being lazy or... I actually loved playing sports because it meant I didn't have to do maths. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that didn't change the fact that I wasn't necessarily able to keep up with them all. And it, because I did a lot of things out with school. So my dad was an outdoor pursuits instructor for a long time. And that's like abseiling and kayaking and rafting. And I was I was into all that stuff from a very, I mean, I was, I think I went whitewater rafting definitely before I was 10. When you were sort of called lazy by the other kids, did, did that bother you? When I was very young, I don't think I was all that bothered. I was kind of in my own bubble. I had my, my people I was around. But as I got to secondary school, uh, as as with everyone, you become more aware of how things are and how people perceive you. It's it's the curse of being a teenager, and it's no different just because uh, just because you've got a health condition. But there are things that become more amplified. Like I suddenly became very aware that I couldn't do a lot of things that other people could do, and people became more difficult. You know, when when you're kids and you can't join in sports, and they generally just don't. You know, they'd be like, oh, you're being lazy or whatever. And they don't care. But as you become teenagers, they, they get a bit more clever with the things they, they want to say. <laughs> the problem is I always go back to this, that there's no way anyone could understand. Yeah. Especially through, through those years. And even into secondary and as teenagers, they couldn't, they couldn't possibly be expected to understand what was going on. Most of them, <laughs> most of my schoolmates were really nice. And the ones that did give me a hard time, it was more to do with a lack of understanding than like a real viciousness in them. It's fair to say, though, that you did feel different to, to kids as you kind of, you know, went through secondary school. I did, I did. And I'm very lucky that I had this this group of people around me, like my close friends who were absolutely happy to just go at my pace when we were doing things. And I, I will be, I'm always very grateful for that because it meant I wasn't completely left out of stuff. Mm. When you were in your late teens, you had uh, further open heart surgeries. Can you tell me about those? 
Yeah, so I I was coming up to my 16th birthday and I was beginning to get, like, the effects are, were becoming far more obvious. I was getting tired and out of breath very, very quickly. And it was like, this isn't right. This isn't just a normal kind of, you know, out of breath doing... I was getting out of breath doing things that I'd been doing all the time with no issue. And this uh, homograph that they put in me, the donor valve, it always had a lifespan because I would be growing. It was put in me when I was three months old and it was over the years they'd um they'd use stents like little keyhole surgery where they'd open up a an artery and basically put a tube up it with a camera but it was getting to the point where that wasn't possible anymore it really reached the end of its life so i was going to go back in for a second open heart surgery to replace it with something new and they decided that they were going to give me an artificial one instead of a donor one which would have meant that when they were replacing the valve in the future, instead of open heart surgery, uh, they would just be able to go in with keyhole surgery and insert a new valve into it without having to, you know, cut my chest open. So they, it was explained to me that this will be a much better way of continuing in the future. You know, you'll be in, you'll stay over one night, you'll be back home the next day, done and dusted. And that and that went pretty well as expected, that, that surgery? It did, it went... Yeah. As it was expected to go, yeah, they, they went in, they replaced everything, and I was sent home. And I think it was on just after that, on my 16th birthday, I went back into hospital because I had a high temperature and they found I had a bit of an infection. And so they gave me antibiotics and it was like, okay, that's all good, you can go home. But I was still getting more unwell over like the months coming up to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I went back into hospital and they said, right, Sutton isn't right here we and they did some scans and they they the new device that they put in me wasn't working as they had hoped it would and after quite a few conversations they were saying right we think we're gonna have to go in and replace it again but when I went in for my tests beforehand they found I had very very high counts of um, infection markers in my blood so they did like full tests and they found I had an infection called endocarditis. It basically it latches onto your heart and, yeah. you know, do, does a lot of damage and just sort of sticks there. So I was put on antibiotics to get rid of it. And I was on antibiotics for a long, long time. I had a pick line inserted in my arm. So I was getting an injection every day uh, of very powerful antibiotics. And that went on for months. And they did a bunch of scans and it wasn't getting better. And it wasn't getting better. And they eventually realized that the reason it wasn't getting better was because the bacteria had latched onto the artificial valve and that was when they said, right, we think we're going to have to go in and um, take this out and give you a donor one instead like you had before. Again, that was that was supposed to be a routine operation, but it turned out to be life-changing in, in a pretty awful way. So can you just explain what happened? Yeah, so I went in for the surgery and it was basically the same as the one that happened the year before. I I went down, I got put to sleep and then the next thing I remember is waking up in a very, very groggy state. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on all kinds of medications. And a doctor came up to me and told me something that I couldn't really process at the time because I was on so much medication, so many drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, probably um, a good thing, yeah. Probably a good thing because... What he'd actually told me was there had been complications during the surgery and due to this, they'd had to amputate my right leg above the knee. 
how did how do you even start to process something like that david i well i i always say when people ask me how did you take it that first mm. moment and mm. i was on that many powerful painkillers that they could have told me all i was was a head in a box and i when i was woken up properly i again it was all explained to me that that happened and it was actually five days later i'd, I'd been in a coma for five days and i was really i didn't know how to react i was in bed and i first thing was they asked me if i wanted to see my leg and i refused to i thought i don't i don't want to look at this right now it sounds weird to say this, but you kind of decided, I think, quite early on that the, the re, one of your coping mechanisms was going to be a, a rather dark sense of humour. Yeah, I I upset a few nurses in those first few weeks. <laughs> I, was, uh, I think there's one story where, and this was while I was still in intensive care, it must have, it can't have been more than three or four days after I'd woken up. And they have these blood oxygen monitors these little things they clip onto your fingers and she came in and my fingers were getting quite dry because of just I was in this dry room all the time so she said do you want me to move that onto your foot I said oh yes please and she said to me which foot would you like me to put it on <laughs> and my instant thought is she's not read any of the notes shall I be shall I be kind and I thought no I'm not going to be actually so <laughs> I said would you put it on my right foot please and she lifted the she lifted the bed sheets and I, I don't know what color I was but she was even more pale than that I would reckon because she kind of and then she was very very apologetic and I'm there like chuckling away while still on like all these breathing machines but snake like I, I think I had the well I must have had the tube taken out because I was talking but I was still on an oxygen mask and I'm laughing and coughing because like I'm feeling so evil inside <laughs> Eva, I mean that that is very twisted but very funny. It was, it was the pot. I mean, she was so apologetic. I was like, no, it's fine, it's fine. And I, I, I just like to imagine she that she's never gone into a room without reading the notes ever again. Hmm. Can you sort of explain what what your recovery was from there on, and and sort of what your darkest, you know, what your lowest point was? My recovery was quite weird because. I was recovering from open heart surgery yeah. and an amputation. Yeah. And I was also in kidney failure as well yeah. because of the length of the operation. Um, and we must just stress to people listening that, listening that this was this was a very, very rare complication, wasn't it? it it's it's not common yes. at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I ha I, there were a lot of different factors. Yes. So what, what was your kind of lowest point? My... Lowest point came a long time after the actual recovery process began because it was it was probably a year or so when I was just in this real um, this real hole. Yeah. Like I was, I I thought I'd been okay because I'd had a year of, like you say, making jokes, being quite funny about yeah. it, getting on with it, and perhaps it was that I'd gotten to the point where I was walking okay on my leg. And I was thinking, I didn't have anything to focus on now. I don't have the walk, learning to walk again. Yeah. You know, you, you can always get better. I'm improving every day. I'm still doing new exercises to improve. But that basic, like, I can walk around without walking sticks now. I'm, I'm kind of, I've got it. And then there was nothing. There was just this kind of emptiness with nothing, kind of, because all my plans that I'd had before the operation, they were 
pretty much out the window and I hadn't made any new plans because I was busy getting better. So I had actually hoped to go into medicine. That had been my plan. I wanted wow. to, when I finished school, go to university to study medicine. And I managed to get onto a doctors at work course in our local hospital where we were shadowing doctors for a week. And that was not long before I had my surgery where I had my amputation. And I was very set. I'd, I'd done that week and I had gotten to realize because I had this heart condition and it was very much, can I cope with what is to come in yeah. medicine? And I did this week and I thought, I can. You know what? It, it's going to be a bit of a struggle, but I, I'm fairly sure I can cope with this. I'm, I've got it. I'm, I'm on the level where it's not going to be a real strain. I'm going to have to try a bit harder than others, but I will manage. But then coming out with a missing leg on top of having a heart condition that were two factors that were working against me. And I'm not saying that people can't go into that kind of field with, um, with physical conditions, but I felt like I wouldn't be able to put enough of myself into it because I'd be focusing on what was going on with me. The str you know, I would be struggling too much. I could have done myself some damage, uh, but, and again, doing myself some damage if I'm working on patients, it's not a good, you know, you. it was just, I had to make a very, it was a very difficult, but quite obvious decision yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, it was difficult to accept that. Yes. Yeah. And and did you, did you formulate new plans for what do you hope to do sort of in the future? So I, I wound up and I don't know how this ended up happening. It was just a totally out of the blue thing, but I auditioned for a show in our, uh, in a, one of our nearby theatres I auditioned for Annie, not for the character Annie. I, you know, I don't have the hair for it. But <laughs> I went in and I auditioned for the villain. And I auditioned for the villain, villain knowing full well that I was going to get like a, a background part if I got in. And so when I went and read the cast list and I saw I hadn't gotten the villain part, I thought, well, I knew that. And I looked at the ensemble and I wasn't in there and I was like, oh, I've not gotten any part at all. And I came away and then I went back and reread it a bit later on and realised that my name was on the list as one of the named characters. It's just, I hadn't even looked at that bit. Amazing. And I couldn't believe it because I'd never done anything like it in, in my life before, like nothing to do with acting. So I to get that part was great. And I so I was playing the butler in Annie, which was an awful lot of fun because I, I got to be quite funny. We decided to, instead of playing it straight, I was really quite funny with it. And that was that was a lot of fun to do. And I really got hooked on that. And so I've been doing that for years since uh, that was 2016, my first show. So that's a really brave thing to do, to put yourself out there like that. It was very, so it was actually my mum just sent me a link to this audition sign up thing. I just thought, oh, well, why not? I've got nothing else going on at the minute. And so I went in for the audition and I got the part and it was suddenly like, okay, now that I've gotten a part, I've never done anything like this before. I'm going to have to like you say, put myself out there in front of people. But as it turns out, I like attention because I yes. loved it. It was incredible. I mean, the the first time I kind of, I I did something and people were like laughing and you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is really good. Like, And the, the best moment, and it's, it's the same in every show, it's that at the end when you all come out and do your bows and everybody stands up and starts cheering and stuff and you're like, this is... Phenomenal. And and just tell me very briefly about, because I love this story about when you got cast as the Tin Man. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I, 
when I got the, so I went in for the audition and I thought it will be hilarious because we're doing obviously Wizard of Oz and I thought it will be absolutely hilarious if I go in an audition because I've got one metal leg and a heart condition if I go and do an audition for Tin Man it's going to be so I mean I'm not going to get it but it's going to be a hell of a story and like I got the email that night so a few of us by that point we'd done a few shows together so we were friends so we were all gathered at one of our friends house and everybody else got their emails and I was the last one and I was there like oh I'm not you know fair enough I've not gotten it. I got the email through saying I'd be, get, been given the part of Tin Man and it was just it was amazing I was so excited but it was hilarious as well because from then on I mean the whole way through and we did the show and I came out I remember coming out afterwards one of them and one of the people were like you've actually got a metal leg are, are you kidding <laughs> I was like yeah and they were like is that not a bit insensitive and I'm like what to who I mean I auditioned for the part <laughs> oh that's that's brilliant and and career-wise David have you had any thoughts about that I would quite like to once perhaps once Covid's over and things have settled down um more kind of in my personal life, I would, I have thought about maybe studying psychology at some point because that was a lot of help. You know, that, that, that woman who, who did that for me, she did a lot to help me and she really pulled me through, like I say, some quite dark times. And it's something that is still in the medical profession, uh, but something I can feasibly actually do and help people with without putting myself or anyone else at risk by uh, overexerting my, my myself well I, I think you'd be absolutely brilliant at it <laughs> thank um, you can i just go back to where, when you were recovering and i want you to tell me this this brilliant story because you said ty you told me that timing was everything and you kind of realized everything was going to be okay because you'd just seen the paralympics oh yes so the timing of what happened to me was particularly Oh, there's no. I'm trying to say a positive thing because I can't really say fortunate. Poignant, I suppose. Poignant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Poignant because only a few months before I lost my leg, the Paralympics in London had been on, and they'd been incredibly high profile. I mean, I, I don't know people remember, but there'd been a massive surge in um in kind of the advertisement for them as opposed to previous years. And I had been glued to it the whole time. Now, I had no real reason to be. I didn't have any kind of disability that let me relate to anyone in it. I had just found it astounding that these people who had these, uh, all of these disabilities were able to do so much kind of with what they had. So I still had this very recent and clear image in my head of seeing, you know, like the, the runners with one leg sprinting the 100 metres and it was a very good driving force because I could look at that and I could think, you know what, that's where, that's where we can go. Like that's, I don't have, this isn't the end of everything. Just I've lost my leg and it's the end of a lot of things, but it's opening up a lot of new things. And there's a lot of different places I can aspire to go now. Um, and so, yeah, the, the Paralympics watching that just by chance a few months before I lost my leg it, uh, it it did a lot. It was very inspiring. I mean, it was inspiring beforehand, but afterwards it was something that very was very important in driving me on. You've been involved with the British Heart Foundation for a, probably about a decade now, and you got involved with One Beat, which is for our 
for heart patients who are sort of young, 18 to 30. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved and what, what you do? It was in, it was actually before I lost my leg. Yeah. So it was after my f- second open heart surgery. Uh, the, they put on an event called the Jingle, well, no, they didn't put on the Jingle Bell Ball. That was capital FM. But they <laughs> did an event where they were taking people along to the Jingle Bell Ball. And my, me and my dad got tickets to go through the British Heart Foundation. And so we went to that and it was great. I'd never been to a concert like that in my life. And I spoke to a few people afterwards, but I didn't really get to know them that well. You know, it was very kind of, you know, we went to the, we went to the show, we had lunch afterwards, back to our hotel, back home. However, the next year there was an event uh, at Gilwell Park in London. It was like a big weekend event. Uh, it It was a residential. So a bunch of us all went into this big holiday camp area and we all stayed and they were doing all kinds of activities, but we were in rooms together and you really got to know people. And I, I knew one person beforehand, uh, actually very good friends. We, we grew up together. Uh, this, this girl who's a year older than me who had a heart condition, but hers was very different from mine. And this was the first time that I'd met such a large range of people with such a large range of heart conditions. And this was the time when I actually met somebody else who had, had truncus arteriosus like me. And up until then, I thought I was like the only person on the planet who'd had it. Wow. But it built some really long-lasting friendships. I mean, I'm still frequently video calling with people that I met nine years ago at this event. And the having having those people to go back to and talk to and understand what you're going through. Yeah. Because I can speak to my friends here and I can speak to doctors. And really, apart from the rest of my family like my mum and dad nobody else has been through it with me and while other people haven't been through it with me they've been through it themselves and you can share that you can share that experience I think it's very important it, it did an awful lot for me and I know for a lot of other people and it's probably one of the most important groups that I've ever become involved with since well over my life yeah I mean it's I was just going to ask you about this because especially other young people with heart conditions they all say that you know the great thing for them especially for their mental health was finding someone who had a shared experience so I guess that that has a big impact on you it does it does and we can I mean the conversations we have are very macabre let me tell you we've (laughs) we've We've got an ongoing bet about which one, well, you know, uh, about very un- unpleasant things. It's not, people out with it would think that we're absolutely horrible. But you, you do, you keep, you keep it lively by making these, these jokes. We're all very dark sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of people like who we, we make jokes about being like honorary heart condition patients because they've maybe not had as many surgeries as the rest of us or things like that. So we just, you know, we allow them to be part of the group. But it, nobody, it, it's all in really good humour and nobody really has any kind of side to them. It's, you can, sometimes you make a joke and you're like, oof, was that a bit much? And it never is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No. We haven't yet found anything that's offended anyone. No, I'm, I'm sure if anyone finds it, it will be you, though, David. Oh, I, I hope so. I would be really disappointed <laughs> if somebody else got there first. Um, I mean, you're too modest to say, but I know that you have inspired other people in the group. I mean, is that is that something that you're kind of aware of deep down and it, you know, it makes you feel good? 
I wouldn't know if I'm too modest. I can I can understand. Yeah, that. fair enough. Pretty pretty inspiring. <laughs> no, I, I no, I would never. I, um, I have, you know, people have said it to me. Uh, my story that they've they found things in it which has helped, which have helped them get perspective or or just understand that they're not alone. And I do. It's it's that like if there's any one person who you can kind of if your story helps somebody else then sharing it and, and allowing people to to listen to it uh, is always worth it i i have it's it's difficult because someone will say oh you know i find you so inspiring and you kind of like what do i say to that it's like you know just <laughs> said, yeah well you should because i am it's not exactly that that kind of takes that undercuts the inspirational part of yeah you. Um, you mentioned your dark sense of humour, and I just want to talk a little bit about your blog. And in the blog, you describe yourself as um, a Scottish wannabe cyborg with a wobbly heart, which I think is about uh, right. So t- tell me why you wanted to do this blog. I So I have been thinking about writing my story down for a while now, and I didn't really know necessarily what form to do that in. And I read, there was an actually somebody from the theatre that I'm at who had done one for herself. And it just kind of made me go, you know what, I think that that's the way to go. And because we were in the middle of lockdown and there wasn't an awful lot else going on at the time, I thought, I'm going to share this. And either either people are going to find it entertaining or they're going to find it really, really sinister, but they're going to have something to read. And... <laughs> For me as well, it gave me an outlet to talk about what's gone on because you don't, people ask you what happened, but you never get a chance to sit down and explain every single yeah, detail yeah, of what's yeah. gone on. I mean, it's like I, I got married last year and I obviously my wife knows everything about it, but actually there have been times she's read my blog and gone, I didn't know that. Yeah. You never, yeah. And you think, well, it's just, and I thought, I, you know what, I want to get this down. It was it was as much for me as well. I thought I I would quite like to see what the reaction to this is and and have it written down somewhere for you know and and before i ask you what the reaction has been um i need you to, i know the title but i need you to say it because it's brilliant <laughs> the hopscot yes because, <laughs> yes uh, a bit, i mean for obvious reasons but you live in scotland that's i mean yes, that's inspired yeah. i you know what i came up with i wrote, i wrote it down and i thought oh that's quite funny someone will have used it before and I went onto Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and put it as my handle, thinking I'm going to have to be like the Hopscot, you know, 2021 or something. And no, nobody had got it before. So I was like, yes, I've thought of something funny that no one else has got yet. So I, I wrote that down and, and I put it down. And I've had a few comments purely based on that title <laughs> of people being like, that's incredible. Like, that's, the, that's one of the best puns I've ever heard. And what has the reaction been? It's been really nice, really positive. A lot of really nice, a lot of people commenting purely on my writing, which mm. I, I, I appreciate because I was, I, all the way through school, I was that annoying person who corrected people, you know, when they, they had bad grammar. So it's nice that people are complimenting me on yeah. it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the story and the way, the way I've told the story, people really seem to, I was worried that people might think it was too, dark and you know you the more you read it the more kind of depressed you were becoming because you're just reading this you know oh and this went wrong and then this went wrong and then I lost my leg and then I had kidney failure you, you have to tone it down with a lot of humor 
there was a, a there was a real danger that it could have become a, a real kind of misery pit. Yeah. Of just yeah. of just all kind of medical. But I I've never spoken like that, and I thought I'm not going to write like that. That's not how I would speak about it. I would make jokes. So I'm going to. I like to write it as if I'm telling somebody face to face what's happened. So I thought, if I, would I say this? Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't. You know and try and convey the like the humor and the sarcasm in the way you're speaking absolutely but but people do i think people do prefer some you know the story is is not a is not a fun one but people latch on to your your sense of humor yeah and that's what the comments are a lot of people saying you know the way i i put it across it's been good people have been really nice i've not i've yet and i've had people total you know people from america commenting on it being like you know there was one guy who put a comment on saying, this is like the best. I've shown this to some of my friends because I've tried to describe to them before what it's like having one leg. And I've just I had to give this to them because this is such a, you know, it, you, you capture it so well in words. And I thought, you know what, that that makes a difference to me. Hearing yeah. that yeah. really gives me a boost. Things like that. That's what then gets you up and like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep it up um, because you you know, it, it again. It's that. It sounds terrible, but it is that kind of. It's not attention seeking so much. It's just liking the the feedback. Yeah, and and you know. having a focus. I mean, you've certainly got lots going on. You know, and you've done a lot during lockdown. But what what's life like for you now? I mean, how is your heart now? My heart is is doing well. He, it's very happy. Um, hmm. The the operation where I lost my leg did work out you know what was supposed to be done was done yeah just with a lot of other things going on around it i'm nearly nine years nearly nine yeah eight and a half years post-surgery and and, you know i'm getting checks and everyone's happy you know i had blood tests the other week and heard nothing back which is always a good sign so it's it's doing well and i'm i'm getting on well with my leg as well i've just kind of had a new one given to me and i'm i'm a improving all the time practicing it's practice you're always practicing with with, with yeah, something like that yeah and and also tell me briefly about a massive event you got married last year was it i did yes yeah. i got married yeah that was that was wonderful and very lucky again timing is everything because we got married in january wow. and the lockdown hit in march wow. so we were one of the last big kind of party weddings that went on around here yeah yeah uh, and that was wonderful. My my wife, she's from Nepal. And so she was over here to get, uh, obviously, to get married. Unfortunately, because of COVID, she's, um, we haven't quite been able to get all of the visa stuff sorted out. So she's back in Nepal at the minute. Um, so that's hence why I haven't written a blog in a while. I've yeah. been quite busy. But yeah, it, it was wonderful. It was actually, it was incredible. I was so happy and it was such a nice kind of, People were so happy for us. I mean, you know, it's a wedding and people tend to be, but everyone just seemed so genuinely happy for us that, you know, this was all going on. And we had a really nice, quite a a bit longer than we'd expected because COVID originally meant she couldn't go back to Nepal. And then when she could go back, obviously now we're having some more, uh, some more things, but... It was a great, it's been a great time. I'm very, I'm a very happy married man. Yeah. Well, I, I really hope that you get reunited soon and can sort of continue on your your married life together. Thank you. Me, me too. Yeah. So um, can I just ask you as we, as we near the end, what are your kind of hopes and dreams for the future? I've had a lot of help from a lot of different things like the British Heart Foundation. And 
like I say about the psychology and wanting to get into that. And that's certainly one thing that I've been interested in. But I also want to, it's like writing this blog and sharing my story. And I'm very interested in bringing other people into it as well and giving people a chance because like I'm planning to start doing this little uh, YouTube series where I talking to people, kind of doing something similar to this. I'm try not trying to steal your thunder or anything. It'll be a very different format. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just again, it's like I think giving people that sort of space to chat about. Yeah. I want I want to give people a chance to talk and to connect with each other. And and that brings me very nicely on to, onto my final question. So what would your message be for other young people who've, you know, got a heart condition and have, have faced a lot of challenges like yourself? Find a group like I did with, the, with One Beat, with the British Heart Foundation. That is absolutely the most important thing I can say to anybody out there who's got any, any kind of heart condition is find a group, especially for people in more rural areas where they don't see that many. It's it's been so helpful and it's been so important and it's had such a big impact on where my life has gone. That that is yeah, that's the single most important thing I could ever say. Apart from you know eat healthy, or a big part of you know the recovery and all that and stuff. And I kind of skimmed over it before, but I had a very very close and tight family unit all through my yes. recovery. Yeah, like I mean we were my my parents and my little sister. We were so um, kind of always in each other's pockets which might not sound might not sound like a fun thing but during that time that support was a, a ma again a massive part of what helped me huge yeah jump forward so quickly with everything I had that real tight-knit group I wouldn't want to end without you know giving them a shout out because that was an incredibly important part and it is going to be to anybody uh, sometimes you might underestimate just how much of an impact being there and being around uh, has. David is part of OneBeat, the BHF support programme for 18 to 30 year olds living with a heart condition. The group brings together younger people with heart and circulatory conditions and it's a place to talk with others who might be going through something similar to you. Join social events and a forum to learn more about your health while getting updates on the BHF's latest research. You can find out more on our website bhf.org.uk slash onebeat. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website, bhf.org.uk. And you can read David's blog at thehopscot.co.uk. Mm -hmm.